Welcome to the public morality. COVID-19 makes practically every situation within our public discourse more acute. We often take for granted that a rising stock market is an accurate barometer for the overall health of the economy. But last week, as unemployment rose to levels not seen since the Great Depression, the stock market didn't acknowledge the pain. In fact, it realized mild gains on the heels of that news. Some offered that Wall Street had already prepared for the bad economic news, but is it that simple? Could it be the relationship between Wall Street and the overall health of the economy is tangential at best? Joining me to discuss the relationship between Wall Street and Main Street is economist Dean Baker. Dr. Baker is co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. He is credited as being one of the first economists to identify the 2008 housing bubble. Dr. Dean Baker, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me on. I want to begin this conversation by having you sort of frame the present moment. You know, oftentimes there's a tendency uh, in public discourse to try to relate one event that's current to something in the past. For example, um, the current uh, crisis, which we try to compare it to the Great Depression or the housing crisis of 2008. How do you see the current moment? Well, I think it really is qualitatively different in the sense that we, we did this to ourselves. I mean, I mean, we imposed the pandemic on ourselves, but we, we shut down the economy. So I find it a little weird that we, of course, we got a lot of really awful numbers, economic numbers from the month of April. And people were looking at them and going, wow, these are really bad. Well, we did deliberately shut down the economy. So we deliberately sh- shut down most of the restaurants in, in most of the country, hotels, airlines, down the, down the list. We, we, in many cases, made it illegal for people to go to work. So when we find out they're not going to work, that's not really a surprise, not good news, but that's that's kind of what we tried to do. The big question is what happens as we try to reopen? And uh, I'm not commenting on the health as whether it's a good idea or not, but the reality is most states are reopening to a substantial extent. Many states are largely reopened at this point. So the question is, what does that look like? And my view is it's kind of a mixed story. It's not going to be a complete disaster, but we are going to see a lot of job loss, a lot of people that um, went on what they thought to be temporary layoffs in, in April. They're not coming back. Um, so we are going to see a very, very big hit to the economy. It's not going to be an economic collapse, but it is going to be a very big hit, bigger than what we saw in 2009. Um, probably, well, I'm fairly confident in as bad as the Great Depression, but definitely a very, very bad story. So as we start to reopen and we aren't deliberately keeping people from going to work, there will be a lot of jobs that aren't coming back. And th- this is going to be a pretty bad story for millions of people. When when you hear the the well the the economic news as as uh, we had last week with with, with the significant job losses, uh, and then at the, at the same time you had sort of marginal gains in the stock market. What what goes through your mind? Well, I think there's a really unfortunate um, sort of misbelief uh, among large segments of the population, and I include from that group the people who write on economics for major outlets media outlets that somehow the stock market's a measure of the economy. It's not. It's not not by design. The stock market is supposed to be a measure of the future profits of the corporations in which people own stock. In other words, if you think of General Electric or Amazon or whatever company you want to look at, 
their stock price isn't going to go up because people go, oh, I have jobs, I got wages. It's going to go up because they think the profits after they pay taxes of General Electric and Amazon are going to be higher. That's what causes their stock prices to go up. Now, those can go together, and oftentimes they have. So we could point to situations, certainly this was true, go back to the 60s. Very good economy, people seeing rising wages, low unemployment, and a rapidly growing stock market. Those went together then because profits were rising in step with the overall economy. But you could have, and we often have seen many occasions where stock, where, where prices, profits did very well and the rest of the economy didn't, and that led the stock market to go up. And that was happening before this, this collapse. So if we looked at the years uh, 218, 219, we had very big run-ups in the stock market. We don't have to look hard for the explanation. We, we had a big corporate tax cut. So corporate profits were way higher because of that, or I should say after-tax corporate profits were way higher because of that. Of course, the economy was doing okay. It wasn't horrible, but the, the economic growth, the wage growth in those years was nothing much to, to boast about. So what we're seeing here, I would say, is that investors are looking at corporate profits and they're saying, well, um, problems in the economy, but on the other hand, Congress and uh, Donald Trump have made it clear they're willing to bail out companies that fall into trouble. So, you know, there's no shortage. Boeing, the oil industry, the airline industry, um, they've been quite open. We're going to come to their rescue. So uh, those stocks are almost certainly much more highly valued than would have been the case if they just had folded their arms and go, well, let's see what the market does, meaning the, the overall economy, the overall uh, market. Um, the Boeing would probably be out of business and stock price wouldn't be worth, wouldn't be very high. But that's the basic story. The stock market's telling us about corporate profits. It's not telling us about the state of the economy and people's well-being. So is this uh, part, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking about the overall economy now, as you articulated, minus the stock market, is this reflective of what began, what, 2009, 2010, when we start talking about a jobless recovery. Is this reflective of that as well? Well, it, it nothing really began then. I mean, they, you could say the market went up a great deal, 2009, 2010, a period when we still had high unemployment and certainly no wage no uh, wage growth in excessive prices. So uh, those years, uh, the wages were not even keeping pace with prices, much less actually seeing um, rising, rising real wages, rising living standards. Um, but to be fair, I mean, the market had plunged in 2007, 2008. So at the the bottom, at its, I think it was March of 09 was when it hit absolute bottom. It was about 50% of where it had been back in, at its peak in 2007. So I, I'm a little reluctant to say, oh, this is outrageous. They had this big run up in the stock market when during those years, at least, say 2009, 10, 11, we were just getting back to where we were in 07. So that wasn't that wasn't a story where you could t talk about the market being sort of line with the gain everyone else was getting. Later on, 2011, 2012, 13, 14, you could make that case because workers really didn't start to see wage gains until, say, 2015 when the labor market finally got tight enough for workers to achieve wage gains. So you were definitely seeing a disconnect with the stock market outpacing certainly wage growth in terms of how rapidly it was rising. And, and wage and, and, and productivity outpacing wages has been something that's been with us, what, since around the late 60s uh, or so? Is that correct? Well, it really started about 1979. There's some measurement issues in the 70s not worth going into, but wages more or less 
kept pace with productivity. And I should be careful here because there is a confusion. And it's an important one. When, when I and most economists make that point about the gap between productivity and wage growth, we're talking about the wages of a typical worker. So if you throw in all workers, wages more or less kept pace with productivity through this whole period. The reason why there's a difference is if we throw in all workers, we have these CEOs that are getting $20 million, $30 million a year. In some cases, we have Wall Street traders. They're, they're counted as workers. Their pay is counted as wages. They can get millions, tens of millions, some can get hundreds of millions. So when you throw them into the mix, then wages kept pace with productivity growth. But if we take the case of a typical worker, someone who's working a retail store, or a factory worker, construction worker, so what we might think is the more typical worker, then wages fell far behind productivity growth ever since uh, the end of the 70s, say 79 or 80. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Dean Baker. Uh, Dr. Baker is an economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research based in Washington, D.C. Dr. Baker, uh, not only in, in the 2020 campaign, but also in the 2016 campaign, you know, Bern, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders is, is noted for offering that this is a rigged economy. Is the, is, if the stock market appears to be immune from the pain that everyone else is feeling, would this sort of make his point as, as he's articulating that rigged economy? I think it certainly does. In particular, what, what we just saw go on with these bailouts. So basically, we had a story, you know, if anyone wants to say they're a believer in the market, well, that's fine. You know, you want to just leave everything to the market. Well, the airline industry's out of business. Uh, Boeing's out of business. You know, most of the hotel chains are out of business. The restaurant chains are out of business. That's what that that's what would have happened if we just folded our arms and just said, "Oh, let's let's see what the market does." That that would have been the story. Um, uh, we, we'd have millions of people, of course, had lost their jobs and had no no other means of income. I mean, I'm not saying it would have been a good thing. I'm just saying if we all want to leave it to the market, that's what we would have done. We didn't do that. We had a massive bailout, and then the question was, okay, who 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 do we make sure comes out more or less whole? And in this case, we made sure that the corporate sector came out very, very well. And you have some actors in there, for example, uh, um, private equity that is very, uh, it's sort of a very, I could go on at length about why am I not private equity, but I'll just say that they operate very heavily leveraged, very high risk operations. And it's exactly the sort of thing that would have been totally wailed in in this downturn. Now, again, you could say they expected this and that, but the point is they understood they were taking really big risks. So you could have just said, okay, these private equity guys should get totally nailed. Well, what happened was the Fed came in and bailed out a lot of their operations so that the private equity operators are doing things fine. Just to be clear, these private equity people, at least the uh, ones that are doing better, um, many cases are billionaires. Uh, Mitt Romney, of course, ran for president in 2012. Everyone who was very rich, he had hundreds of millions of dollars. He was actually not one of the bigger, one of the richer, more successful private equity people. Not anyone would feel sorry for him, but there were people that made 10, 20 times as much as him. So we just bailed those people out. Um, in bailing out other companies, say the airlines, we could have said, uh, you know, we want to keep our airline industry. That's a reasonable thing to say. But guess what? You know, CEOs, instead of getting 15, 20 million, as some of them do, say, you know, you're going to get 2 million. No one gets more than 2 million. We, we could have said that. You know, I would say, if you don't like that, well, then you don't take our money. Um, so we ended up bailing out corporations on terms that were very favorable to their shareholders, very favorable to their top executives. 
And that was entirely a policy decision. That was not markets. That was just you know, members of Congress and uh, Donald Trump obviously went along with us. They thought, yeah, it's it's important. We have to preserve the high pay of CEOs. We have to preserve, ensure that these private equity guys don't uh, don't have their comeuppance and uh, get wiped out by uh, a bad end. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that's rigged. Hmm. Uh, you know, you've touched on it in several ways. Uh, I'd like to have you expand on it. How much does well? Let's just start with with the president. How much does the president influence the economy on a general? I'm talking about generally, just a, a the, the office of the president. How much does that, that executive office influence the economy? Well, it's very limited if you just say the president by themselves. So, what can a president do without the support of Congress? Not all that much. Uh, Donald Trump's really pushed his authority. You could argue whether for good or bad, but he's done a lot on trade that's really been extraordinary for a president. So he's really acted unilaterally, imposing tariffs on China and Canada, um, other countries, in ways that other presidents haven't. Um, they, they all have done that to some extent, but he's gone way, way beyond what other presidents have done. Um, but they're, they're fairly limited. They have some regulatory authority, and they can do some things in terms of uh, government contracts, who will get them, or put rules on government contracts, I should say. Um, but that's fairly limited. So where their biggest power is, where they can try and set an agenda and push it to Congress, and, and Trump has done that. So, for example, the most obvious thing was his tax cut, the, his big tax cut they pushed through at the end of 2017. So that was a very, very big measure that does have an economic impact, but he had to get the approval of Congress. If he had faced a hostile Congress and was able to get that through, of course, then he wouldn't have that in his hand. And then um, following up with that, what about the role of the Federal Reserve Board? Well, the Federal Reserve Board can be very, very important. And uh, the current Federal Reserve, I think, has, for the most part, done a very good job, both prior to this uh, downturn and then dealing with the crisis. So I'm saying prior to the downturn, one of the big things the Federal Reserve Board uh, has done in the past, uh, has often done, I should say, is they, they've deliberately tried to slow the economy. They raise interest rates, try and slow the economy, ostensibly because they're worried about inflation. So if you raise interest rates, if the Federal Reserve Board raises interest rates, that means if you or I were going to get a mortgage, we're going to get a car loan, companies are looking to, about to invest, we're all going to pay higher interest, which means that there'll be less people buying houses, less people buying cars, uh, companies will undertake less investment. State and local governments that pay interest on bonds, they're less likely to have a bond issue for infrastructure. So that slows the economy. And oftentimes, the Federal Reserve Board has done, has done that, as I say, deliberately to try to prevent inflation. And what that means, at least most immediately, is keeps people from getting jobs. And that's that's something that I and others have complained about because, you know, we're, we'd like to see people have jobs. And if you keep people from getting them, again, ostensibly because they're concerned about inflation, they're not evil people. But, you know, if they do that when there's not really as big a risk of inflation as, as some believe, then they're they're needlessly keeping people from getting jobs. And what we saw just before the, the collapse here, back in, uh, the, in in 2019, in the first month or two of 2020, 
The Fed had been very easy on interest rates. It allowed the unemployment rate to get to the lowest level since the late 60s. So we had an unemployment rate of 3.5%. And that actually allowed for workers to see real wage gains. So we saw not just uh, before I was talking about workers at the top doing well, but workers working in restaurants, people working in retail stores, people, very ordinary workers, they were actually seeing substantial wage gains. So that was a really great thing. Not It, it didn't correct 40 years of wage stagnation, but at least things were going the right way. So that's hugely important. Um, now, since the crisis, the Fed has been very active in making money available, making money loans available at low interest rates. And uh, I was saying before, bailouts, they bought up a lot of uh, corporate bonds, uh, municipal bonds, state bonds. They've been, been basically keeping the financial markets afloat. And what the, what you or I would care about that, I'm assuming you're not a big speculator, if we want to get a mortgage or if we want to get a car loan, well, you need money. Someone needs that money to lend to us. And because of the Fed's actions, basically those markets have kept going so that typical people are able to, to, to buy a car, to, to refinance a mortgage. So that that's really helped keep the economy going. So I give them mostly high marks. My My, my main criticism is that they didn't necessarily draw the lines in the right places, and, and I'm not happy about seeing the, the private equity people bailed out. Uh, all right. I'm gonna, my next question, you, you can answer this however you want to answer it. What is a small business? Well, that's a great question. I mean, we have a lot of uh, people that define small businesses as businesses that employ hundreds of people. I don't think that fits the bill in my book. I would say a business that employs less than 100 people fits the bill of a small business. And even there, you're you're getting fairly large at that point. Um, but you have a lot of definitions for a lot of purposes that have small businesses employing up to 500 people. And that just doesn't seem that small to me. I mean, obviously, if you have 500 people there, you have your, your owner or boss, whoever – they don't know everyone who works there. They might know most of them. They might uh, not to say they're a bad person or anything, but that's not. This isn't a mom and pop store that employs five or six people, and everyone knows everyone, and they know when someone's having a kid or when a family member dies or something. So I, I, I'm a little um, skeptical of what passes for small businesses in many circles. Well, I, I raised that. Um, um, you, you can't see that since I have a great face for radio. You can't see how I'm looking, but I raised that. <laughs> Smirking when I asked you because the term small business is thrown around by every politician, how they're trying to help small business. But I'm wondering, given the wide swath that you just articulated to, that defines small business, are the policies, in your view, weighted more toward those 500 plus on uh, those 500 employee businesses or the less than 25 businesses? What, how are those policies uh, weighted, in your opinion? Well, that's a really good question because, you know, we had the main bailout program. There are a number of different bailout programs. There's, there's going to be more to come, or at least I hope there are because we certainly need them. But if you look at what we passed today, the largest um, single program in the, the rescue packages, the very pa various packages passed by Congress, was this uh, Paycheck Protection Plan, which was designed explicitly for small businesses, and that was defined as businesses that employ less than 500. So you go, okay, well, that's fine. You know, I have my, my corner store, I employ five people, and I'll go to the bank, and you know, the business that employs 450 will both go to the bank, we'll both get our money. 
Well, what the banks did was they prioritized the larger businesses. And uh, I mean, you can decide whether you want to blame them or not, but there's a logic there. They were their regular customers. So they have a business that they, they've been lending money to for years, that they've uh, they've been a customer for years. They gave them priority. So, you know, the person comes in there with a business of five people they were last in line. And that was a real big deal for two reasons. One is just that people really needed the money. So you have businesses, they're trying to to do the right thing, uh, keeping workers on the payroll, at least I consider that the right thing. Um, they don't have any cash coming in because they had to be shut down. Um, so they really, really needed the money. So being uh, not being back of the line, that was a problem. But the other thing was the first package, the first tranche of that, the the first bill that was passed through Congress appropriated only $350 billion. I know it sounds like a lot of money, but it wasn't enough. So they ran out of money. Now, they did come up with another package with more money. So in principle, that should be enough to get it through. Now, I know there's still a lot of small businesses that have not been able to get loans that they probably should be approved for in most cases it's it's uh, I'm a little reluctant to use the term just a technical glitch because it means that people can't get the money. It's a really big deal, but it's because the banks don't they they weren't given good guidance. They haven't done this before. They don't to some extent know what they're doing. So they have a lot of businesses come in there that it's not quite cookie cutter. So they're looking at them and they go, well, we don't really know whether we can give you the money. And in most cases, Congress designed this loosely. Businesses are supposed to be able to get the money. But you have a lot of banks where they're looking at some of these smaller businesses and they're they're holding it up because or in the cases they've actually turned it down because they don't they don't fully understand the guidance given them from uh, from the Treasury Department on how to run the program. Uh, and, and, and if you look at what has been appropriated thus far uh, by uh, by the federal government um, in the form of forgivable loans. Um, are you concerned of the overall health economy moving forward if uh, a large number of those loans are indeed forgiven for various reasons? Is that a, is that a danger? Is that a long term danger to uh, to the economy? Well, not really. I, I, I expect that the vast majority of those loans would be forgiven. So the basic story for the small business loans was if you use the bulk of your your loan for your for pay your workers and for your rent and a couple other expenses are listed in there that that's forgiven. Um, so my anticipation would be is that the vast majority of those loans would be forgiven, and that simply is an expense to the government. So that would mean a addition to the to the deficit and the debt. That's not a problem as far as I could see, not anytime soon. I mean, not under no circumstances would that ever be a problem, but it's not now. So I'm really, that's not one of the things I'm concerned about, just put it that way. So I, I, we have lots of reasons to be concerned about the health of the economy, but forgiving those loans really should not be a problem. I wanna, I'm going to go back to the, the initial reason we had you on, which was the, 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 the sort of bifurcation of the stock market versus the overall economy. And, and and when market indexes like um, S&P 500 are weighted to reflect the performance, as you said earlier, of, of the largest, most profitable companies, that doesn't account for the in, entire um, uh, American economy, as you sort of stated earlier. Therefore, when the nightly news reports that the stock market um, is up, or, they, or even given the stock market is down, I mean, they're really giving us a small slice of the pie and portraying it as the whole pie, leaving us this narrative that the economy is one way or the other based on the performance of one index. 
or several units. That's right. And it's, it's again, just as clear as possible. Stock prices go up, other things equal, and that's always a big clause here. But stock prices go up, other things equal, when investors believe that companies' future profits will be higher. So when they tell us the market went up two percentage points today or something, what they're, what, they're, what they're telling us is that, oh, investors are confident about the future profits of these large companies, which, again, if you owe stock, own a lot of stock in them, you're happy for. But as far as everyone else, it, it may or may not be good. I mean, they could think that profits will go up because we're seeing rapid growth in the economy. A lot of people are getting jobs and then they'll be buying more. OK, that's fine. That's good for everyone. But it may be the case that their profits are expected to be higher because they just heard that there's this new tax cut planned in Congress, big corporate tax cut. That's going to mean that they'll be paying less in taxes and therefore higher profits. Well, that's not in any obvious way good for the rest of us. So there's all sorts of things you could think of where it's going to mean that stock prices will be higher because future corporate profits will be higher. But for everyone else, it's either neutral or even a negative. And, and since economics is... Uh... A social science. Do do you worry if 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 we continue to see and I and I'm I'm I have no way of knowing, but I'm guessing there will be more more unemployment before there's less. Um, are are you concerned? And at the same time, with the stock market, you know, showing really no concern about about unemployment in terms of its performance. Um, are you concerned that this is going to affect long term behavior? Well. I guess this is more a criticism of the way the stock market's reported. The stock market will do what it does. I think if we if we just had reporters, I mean, if you just said what the stock market is, so this measure of expectations of future profits. So if you had uh, you heard on the nightly news that where they said, oh, expectations of future profits went up today. Well, that, that would give you tell you clearly what's going on. But most of us who don't have llama in the stock market go, okay. But what does that mean for a typical worker? Of course, it means nothing. Could be bad for a typical worker. We don't even know, you know. So, so the problem to me is just the way it's reported, as though we're getting an a measure of the economy's health and, so I'll say, the larger society's health, when it's really just a very narrow measure. It's telling us about future corporate profits. Uh, when was the last time uh, when the choice was presented between? Uh, let's say the investor class and the labor class that that it was labor that received the benefit of the doubt. I'm hearing you talk about how we have uh, benefited large corporations. When was the last time labor got that type of benefit of the doubt? The labor class, I should say. Well, I would put you know we could go back to the '50s, the '60s, and I would say it was a more equal period. So it wasn't that corporations were hurting; they did very well. Stock prices did very well, but workers got their cut. So workers, in here again, I'm meaning the typical worker, a person working on assembly line, a retail store, typical worker. Not I'm not talking about the someone at the very top. They were getting their share of the gains of growth. So so it wasn't. I mean, you could say corporations always want more. That's a fair thing to say. I think that's true. But they were doing fine. They were getting uh, profits were rising in step with the economy. Stock prices were going up a lot. So, so they had very little to complain about. But workers were getting their share. So when I think of, okay, uh, Dean Baker, you're in charge now. You know, I don't think okay, we're gonna we're gonna wipe out the corporate sector. I wouldn't want to do that, but I think how can we get back to something like the fifties and sixties, where we have an economy where fine corporations make profits, but workers are gonna get their share of gains. And it's been a long time since we could tell that story. 
Um, as, as we as we are talking now and still in the midst of a global pandemic, we um, my take on on your words earlier, we sort of hit the pause button on the economy. Would that be fair? Absolutely. That's that. That's the way I would put it. It's uh, so again. That's why I'm not quite as negative as some people saying, "Oh, we have this incredible collapse." Because we did it. <laughs> we hit the pause button, so we made the economy stop. And of course, we will unpause it, whether we do that in a good way or not. Very much debatable, but we are going to unpause it. Well, and meanwhile, meanwhile, in the midst of this pandemic, we we, we see, and I'm based this on on the unemployment numbers. Lab, the labor is struggling. And the stock market continues as business is normal. Is there any potential fallout just from that dynamic in your view? Not necessarily. I mean, the big thing will be what happens as the economy, as we on pause the economy. So again, we we were keeping people from working in April, and to some extent, we're still doing that today. I mean, it's the pandemic will keep people from working as we go forward, but people are legally being prevented from working. Um, and the packages, the the rescue packages that went through Congress did a reasonably good job keeping people whole. It's not to say everyone is fine, but the unemployment benefits, they had a $600 bonus, weekly bonus that meant that a lot of people were getting more through this period where they weren't able to work than they would have gotten if they were working. So that's not bad. $1,200 checks to uh, most people in, uh, who, who were working. So um, that that's pretty good in keeping most people whole. So so through that period, through April into the, the present, I think we've done a reasonably good job of keeping people whole. Now, again, I don't mean to say everyone's fine, in particular uh, undocumented workers. Many people have been here decades. They didn't get those benefits. So that's a really, really big problem. But most people did. So in that sense, that's okay. But when we go forward and we get a situation where, okay, you, we've ended the shutdowns, people can go back to work, restaurants could be open. Well, we aren't going to be anywhere near where we were back in February. We're getting millions of people, um, more than 10 million, I'm quite sure, that don't see their jobs come back. And that's going to be a really big problem, of course, for those people, but also for the workers that are do have their jobs, they suddenly have much less bargaining power. You're in a much better situation to tell your boss you'd like to get a pay raise if they know you could just go across the street and get the same job. On the other hand, if you have another 10, 15 million people unemployed, tell your boss you want a pay raise, they'll go, well, you know, I'm fine, go out in the street. I could hire the next person through the door. Uh, finally, I, I would like for you to explain how um, the unemployment insurance works. Just because I received um, several emails uh, of people um, writing me as if the unemployment insurance was some sort of benefit they were paying for some uh, lazy workers. So could you please explain how unemployment benefits work? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's called unemployment insurance, and it is insurance. So it, it comes out of your wage every week. So people are, um, I, I'm forgetting if you look in your paycheck, you know what it would say. That I forget the exact wording on it, but but it's a tax. It varies a little by state, but usually on the order of half of a percent to one percent, and it goes into a fund. They're administered at the state level. They get a lot of federal money as well. In this particular case, they're getting mostly federal money. But in any case, it's administered at the state level, goes into a fund, 
And when people lose their jobs, then they're eligible to get unemployment benefits. But it's it's you have to be laid off from your job. So if your boss fired you because you were harassing another employee, you don't get unemployment insurance for that. So it, it, you get unemployment insurance because you got fired because the business had uh, laid off or fired because the business didn't have enough work for you. And it's typically around half your pay. Again, it varies somewhat by state. Some it's as low as forty percent. Some are a little higher, around fifty-five percent, up to a maximum, and that varies by state too. And a condition getting that they, they relax this in the current crisis, but a condition getting it is that you have to be applying for work. So you have to, while you're getting benefits, you have to say that I'm actively looking for work and different states have different rules on that. Some say you have to come down there and show them here are three employers. I'm doing this now. See, I'm applying for work. Others are a little more lax, but all of them have a requirement that you have to be looking for work. So this is something people pay for themselves. They can't just say, oh, I'm going to quit my job and get unemployment benefits. You have to be laid off by your employer and not for cause. And during the period you're getting benefits, you have to be looking for work. And one, citizenship status has no is not applicable to, to the policy you just outlined. Is that correct? Well, it's correct with the qualification. If we're an, an undocumented worker, odds are they're not in the books. So, so in principle, an undocumented worker is not working legally. So, so you know, again, many have found ways, and I'm not condemning it. I'm just saying the reality. Right. Many, many have found ways so that they probably are on the books and are getting benefits. But technically, if they're not legally working, they wouldn't be in a position to get benefits. Uh, well, Dr. Dean Baker, I want to thank you uh, for joining us once again on the Public Morality. Uh, much appreciate your sage wisdom. Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Take care. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Our archive broadcast can be found on SoundCloud as well as iTunes. And I would like to once again thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality during the corona pandemic. The Public Morale is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And remember the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.